Would you please pray with me? Lord God, what a great day it is to look up to the sky and see you ascended as our king. And I pray that as we look at this familiar story for many of us, and for some perhaps new to us, I ask that you would teach us with grace and truth what you would have us know so that we would be fully equipped, empowered, and ready to walk in the fullness of your truth no matter where we're found. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Ravi Zacharias was having lunch with a UCLA law professor recently. The law professor had asked Ravi to go to lunch with him. And he started to have a conversation. And this law professor is a skeptic, really, but he's on a spiritual journey. And so Ravi said, well, tell me about that. And he says, well, I am on a journey. If there's anything that attracts me, it's the life of Jesus Christ. And so he asked him about the specifics of his journey, and he grew up in a conservative house, but he went off to college, and like many, just went off the rails, and he said, I, I came to believe that there's no such thing as good, there's no such thing as evil, and now I've come to realize that that doesn't correspond to reality, and I've come to realize that for our culture, it's too late, it's over, we've lost the war. And so Ravi says, well, why don't you define those terms for me? And he said, I lived as if there's no values except for my own values. But I've come to the conclusion that there are transcending values that we all must abide by. And if you don't abide by those transcending values, any culture is lost. And what we do at the university is we take the brightest young minds in our universities and we destroy them. You know, it was Viktor Frankl that said that the Holocaust was not prepared on some military desk in Berlin, but rather the lecterns and professors and lecture halls of the professors and philosophers of Germany. See, we've become a culture that has severed the head from the heart and feeling, and therefore the feelings that we feel are out of touch with reality and our thinking is out of touch with our feeling. And God created us to have them all be connected, right? And so therefore, we have a whole generation that listens with its eyes and thinks with its feelings. We have a generation that listens with its eyes and thinks with its feelings. And when we look at this passage of the ascension and the realities of it, we start to connect the head to the heart. So I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, because we're going to do this in stereo this morning. You're going to open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, but you're going to open up the back of your bulletin to Luke 24, which is there for you. And if you're visiting with us, it's Luke 24 is in the back of the bulletin. We return to Luke today, our good friend where we saw in Luke chapter 24 that three-portrait painting, like a, like a triptych there. We've noticed that on Luke 24 is that portrait that's painting of just Easter Sunday. 
The first painting is the picture of the empty tomb where the troubled woman conversed with angels. You have the second picture which shows Jesus' followers on the road and they don't recognize him. He instructed them himself about the scriptures. And the third painting is of Jesus' sudden appearance that night amid his starting disciples. And then chapter 24 concludes with what Zach just read for us. The glorious ascension of Jesus into the clouds. The glorious ascension not only provides the gospel, concludes the gospel of Luke, but it's also a bridge to Luke's sequel, the book of the Acts of the Apostles, which begins, as we heard read by Lisa, with the ascension. In fact, just as Luke addressed his gospel to Theophilus, you remember that address, right? I write these things to you, O most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty of that you which have been taught, Luke 1, 4. He begins Acts this way in verse 3. It seemed good to me also, Theophilus, to write an orderly account for you, O most excellent Theophilus. He later began the book of Acts by saying, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given his commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And so throughout the book of Acts, he greatly expands with a brief description of the ascension with which he had concluded his gospel. So there's overlap here. All right? So we learn in Acts verse, chapter 1, verse 3, that Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them 40 days and speaking of the kingdom of God. If all we had was Luke, you would have thought the ascension happened right away. But because we have Acts, we know there's 40 days later. We also know through the other Gospels. You know, we know that Jesus appeared to specific disciples on Easter Day, to Peter, to the two, the Emmaus Road, and to Mary Magdalene in John chapter 20. We know that he made appearance to the apostles' gatherings after the 40 days, first on the Easter night, a week later with Thomas and the disciples in John 20, and the third time to some disciples when they were fishing in Galilee in John 21. And there were evidently other appearances that Paul writes for us in 1 Corinthians 15. 15, 5 through 8 says, He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom were still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me says Paul. So Luke also tells us in Acts that sometime during these 40 days, Jesus enlarged the promise of the Holy Spirit that he had given on Easter evening. In verses 4 and 5 of Acts 1, he says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Okay? 40 days earlier, he said, you'll be clothed with power from on high, we heard read. 
He says, all right, boys, it's not many days now. Just stay in Jerusalem. Don't go back to Capernaum. Stay right here because you're going to receive all that you need soon. Those were the days, huh? Multiple appearances, great learning from Jesus, restored relationships with Jesus, just growing in a passionate relationship with him. And at the end of those 40 days, Jesus called the 11 together there on the Mount of Olives. And there the apostles are now filled with great expectations in Acts 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked Jesus, Lord, will you tell us at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. (laughs) Can can you just imagine? You know, because they're still thinking political. We always do that, right? No, he goes, it's not for you to know. But you will receive power and you'll be my witnesses here in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the end of the world. And that mandate continues to this day for his church. So let's look at this ascension briefly, and then we're going to look at what it means for us. Okay, so Luke 24, verse 15 and 51, together with Acts 1, 9, tells us what these 11 saw at the ascension. Luke 24, then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Acts 1.8 says, 1.9 rather says, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. So the ascension begins with Jesus' hands raised up in the priestly Levitical blessing. So he's blessing them and the use of the imperfect tense in both Luke and Acts was carried up and as he was lifted up, seems to indicate that he ascended slowly while raining down blessing on his friends. It's a beautiful picture. That's why you see the pictures. His hands are always raised like this. And so the cloud that took Jesus, Acts 1-9 literally received Jesus, was the Shekinah. It was the visible representation of the pleasure and presence of God. This was the same luminous presence that Moses had encountered on Sinai and covered him with the afterglow that the people of Israel couldn't even look on. It was the same cloud that traveled before Israel by day and became a pillar of fire by night. It sat over the tabernacle. It was the same shimmering presence that met Jesus with Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, where his face shone forth like the sun. And so the disciples remained transfixed, looking up as the Shekinah moved farther and farther away. And just, I'm sure they stood there with their mouths open as the distance increased and their dazzled countenances began to fade and their sparkling eyes dimmed as they could no longer hear Jesus anymore. And while they're gazing up at the sky, suddenly, as angels are wont to do, appear two angels who say to him in verse 10, Men of Galilee, 
Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This was the exodus which the gospel Luke had moved toward all along. In Luke 9, we read that during the transfiguration in his glorious splendor, in Jesus' conversation with Moses and Elijah, Jesus had spoken with Moses and Elijah, verse 31, Luke 9, about his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Shortly after that discussion, in verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So finally, before the Sanhedrin, on the night before his crucifixion, he refers to his exaltation and his ascension. 2269, Jesus says to them, but from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So now, my friends, as Jesus has ascended, his exodus is now complete. And with his ascension, there also came an elevation of his ministry to new heights. So what does this mean for us? And what's the significance of this? We're, we hinted at it in our prayer on Psalm 68. You might have heard it in verse 18. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, receiving gifts among men. We prayed that. You might have missed it. Because, you know, we all drift, right? I know, I get it. But if you go back and read it, Paul quotes this as referring to Jesus' ascension. Paul says in verse 8 of chapter 4 of Ephesians, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Note that Paul, knowing this psalm was about Jesus, freely changed the pronouns you to he to make it clear that it prophetically refers to jesus and picture jesus as giving gifts to men rather than receiving gifts so how are we to understand this first to begin with psalm 68 apart from his prophetic uh, inference and significance celebrates the ascent of the davidic king to jerusalem after a victory it likely refers to King David's festive procession with, with uh, taking the ark back into Jerusalem. Or it commemorates David's early capture of Jerusalem. So just alone, it's a, it's a psalm of great celebration. The psalm sees this, but it's also a prophecy of a far greater ascension. Instead of merely being the record of an Old Testament ascension up the pitching mound of Mount Zion to what would be the new temple of Jerusalem, Psalm 68 celebrates, ladies and gentlemen, a messianic ascension from this world into God's heaven where the great king distributes the spoils of his victory upon his people. So Paul interprets it this way in Ephesians 4, verses 9 through 12. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended in, into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all things, that he might fill all things. 
And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So we see that the ascension of Christ, his earthly exodus, means two things for his people. First, his exaltation, and second, his mission. So let's look at his exaltation first. First, it says in chapter 24 of Luke, verse 51, that he was carried up into heaven. This is not a spatial description. Uh, his ascent cannot be described merely in terms of space and distance. You can't measure heaven in terms of miles or light years. The created universe cannot hold God, as Solomon indicates in 1 Kings 8, when he dedicates the temple. Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, O Lord, how much less this house I have built. Heaven is another sphere where God is wholly experienced and known. Wherever this awesome sphere may be, we do know that Jesus was exalted as his ascension to the right hand of the Father. Mark 16 states, So then Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. To sit at the right hand is a statement of power and authority. Peter had described the resurrected ascended Christ as the one who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So my friends, we call ourselves Christians. We submit ourselves to his authority. To see Jesus ascended in this way is to understand that he has been exalted to the highest position possible in the entire universe. The night before Jesus died, he prayed in John 17, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That his re-glorification appears to be more glorious than original glory. An acquired glory is a glory that's due to the consequences of his earthly life and suffering. I don't know how this can be, but how can one who is infinitely glorious become more glorious? The answer is suggested by the new name that he received. Paul gives us this in Philippians 2. Check out this. This is amazing. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The new name was Jesus the name of his acquired humanity that he took in his glorified body back to heaven with his scars. That's what makes it more beautiful. And so as an infinite glory may not be improved, but it is greater in that angels and men have acquired a better understanding of it. And because he is exalted, the scriptures remind us that we too are exalted. We see that the incarnation of Jesus, of God in Jesus Christ was not a casual and fleeting but has permanent consequences because Jesus went back to heaven physically. 
in his humanity. Christ's humanity is in heaven, and at his coming, he will take that humanity that he's redeemed to go back home with him. Jesus has become, in 1 Corinthians, the first fruit of his people. Through his resurrection and ascension, and therefore he guarantees us the final redemption for those who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ. So as a result, my friends, of our unity with Christ, there's a sense in which we are exalted with him. And we're ascended with him. Thus, where the head is, there are the members. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 1. And God raised us up with him and has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The present exaltation of believers is a fact which we will fully see upon Jesus' return. But friends, we have ascended with him and we are to glory in that now. That's the first point. The second point is Jesus' threefold ministry. Because his ministry has three things that he's doing right now. Jesus first ascended into heaven to begin his ministry as the high priest. Paul rejoices in this in Romans 8. He says, who's to condemn me? He's basically saying, I'm a, I'm a mess up. I can't get this Christian thing down right. But who's to condemn me? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. The fact that his glorified earthly bodies in heaven should give you great comfort. There is no aspect of our human experience that does not resonate with him. Everything resonates with him. And the author of Hebrews rejoices in this. He says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. That's why they named themselves Anchor Church, by the way. That's why they changed their name. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And again, in verse chapter 7 of Hebrews, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Ladies and gentlemen, God in Jesus prays for you every second of every day. Grasp that. Isn't that comforting? <laughs> There's nothing that's far from him. That's the first aspect of his ministry. The second aspect of his ministry, it gets even better because he sends the Holy Spirit. Verse 49 it says, behold, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power. Then in Acts, he says, don't move. Don't go back to Capernaum. You guys have been fishing. Stop fishing and just stay here. Because I've ascended to heaven so he could be nearer to his own. Imagine if Jesus had chosen Jerusalem to be where he would stay forever. He would have deprived every other place of his presence. But with the ascension, all restrictions are off. And there's nobody or no one that is beyond his reach by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
The third aspect of his ministry is the power he gives us to live the life he's called us to live. Jesus not only sends us the Holy Spirit, but he supplies power to his church. John 14, at the Father's right hand, all power is his. When Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, said Jesus, as he was about to promise the Spirit, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. We will celebrate an aspect of that next week when we get to Pentecost, but I encourage you to rest in the ascension truths throughout this week with me, all right? Rest in them. Because not many days later, the disciples saw the truth of this Pentecost. Jesus had ascended to heaven and give them the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the greatest of all works that he gives us is the salvation that he procured for us upon the cross. Considering the poor vessels that God uses to preach his word. And so the ascension of our Lord, my friends, has brought about for each and every one of us this morning. His glorious exaltation, therefore our exaltation. Kind of an already and not yet exaltation. He intercedes for us. He's present with us in the Holy Spirit. And he empowers us to do the ministry he's called to. That is why the early church confessed the ascension. That's why we celebrate this. Great indeed when we confess the mystery that we see. Paul says it to Timothy in this way. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed by the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. And so when we say the Nicene Creed today, whenever we say the the Apostles' Creed, it's all one sentence, right? On the third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. They're all glorious truths for all of us. So why does this matter? I think it matters when you look at the end of the biography and the beginning of Acts. First, what we see in Luke, verse 52 and 53, is they lived lives of worship. 52, and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continuing in the temple blessing God. With the ascension, all his disciples at last, at last understood and they bowed in awed adoration. This is where the good news of Jesus ought to leave us to. And I know I'm human and I stink at this Christian things at times too, right? But our Christian lives are like this, right? Right? Come on. Right? Okay. Welcome to it. But it should be a steady growth for each and every one of us. Why? Because it's grounded in the reality of the ascension. He's exalted. He's praying for you. He's empowered you. He's given you all we need to live this life where we live, work, or play. So we worship. And worship, it drives me nuts when worship leaders stand up and say, Let us stand and worship the Lord. And I say, what do you think I've been doing? You worship while you hear the word read. You worship while you're praying the corporate prayers together. We worship as we hear the sermon. We worship as we sing. 
We worship when we leave all of our lives our Christian worship. And oh yes, God's given us this gift of this day, which I'm so glad the Anglican reformers didn't call it like the Christian Sabbath. They named it the Lord's Day. Why do you think they did that? Because they knew human nature. Because the people of Israel had done it in the Old Testament. We want to do on the Lord's Day what we want to do. And they want to remind us, it's not your day. It's the Lord's Day. And that gives us pause, doesn't it? Friday's my day off. If you call me, I won't answer the phone. It's my day of rest. But I got to tell you, I really struggle with resting and hearing from the Lord and allowing just the Lord to speak through me on my day off. Because I work on Sundays. Some of you guys work on Sundays at times. I know what you're dealing with. When you got another day off, it's, it's a struggle not to fill it with the to-do list. And I know you got a to-do list, don't you? You do. You do. There's a great temptation of the world that comes along and says, you got to do this today, you got to do this today, you got to do this today, you got to do this today. No, 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 no. It's the Lord's day. Live unto him. It's a gift. It's a gift. Rest. Gather with God's people. Hear the word. Be fed by the word and by the climax of the table of the service. Just we swell with praise as we walk out of here. And let what the Lord has taught you today just seep down into your soul. Write it down. And become a worshiping people. It carries on for the next three days, the afterglow. All right? And then on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, we prepare for the next one. It's a beautiful pattern of life. But all of our lives are worship. And they, because they're appeasable of worship, you go to Acts, and you see the second reality of, this, of, of the sequel. It records that their worship flowed into witness into a witness by their life and their words. Because it's got to be both, right? It's got to be both deeds and words. It's got to be a life that matches the profession of faith. And it's also got to, as it does the kind deeds, it also has to be willing to speak the truth with grace and love and hope. That's what we're called to. Because that's what happens. And that's what the ascension teaches us. And so, my friends, I want us, because of this journey through Luke and Easter, ever since Christmas, when we started this whole, that you may be certain. <laughs> I hope you're gaining certainty in your trust in Jesus Christ. Because we're going to come back to Luke in a few weeks. You know, next week is Pentecost. We're going to focus on the reality of the Holy Spirit. The following week is Trinity Sunday. One of my kids said, Dad, all we do is party. I go, yes, that's right, we do. Isn't it awesome? And then we're going to go back to Luke when the bishop comes. It's a glorious reality. I want us to take the eyewitness biography testimony of Luke and put it where it belongs. Because Christianity is a historical truth claim. People think in our culture that it's wishful thinking. That it's, you know, it's good for you, but it's not good for me. And I, I had somebody say that to me at Jake's a few weeks ago, by the way. Well, that's good for you. It's not good for me. I go, how is this good for me? 
How is a historical reality good for me? You tell me when I'm made fun of for what I believe. How is that good for me? You, you got this, you're thinking about this thing the wrong way. Got to take it out of the warm fuzzies because I don't always feel the warm fuzzies. Do you? I feel a peace that surpasses understanding. That's true. There is an experience with the Lord. <laughs> but we got to take it out of that warm, fuzzy experience that our culture wants to put in and put it where it belongs in, in a historical claim. This ascension happened in front of a bunch of witnesses who wrote about it for you, just like we're going to celebrate the 75th anniversary of D-Day next week. That happened. How do we know? It was recorded in history. Well, so is this. Okay? You don't have to believe it. You don't have to. You know, it's your right not to. But if you call yourself a Christian, you don't walk away not worshiping in tremendous awe because you are not an orphan. You have God in Jesus praying for you. You have God and the Holy Spirit filling you. And you have God and the Holy Spirit empowering you to live the life you've been called to live. All for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful once again for this day and what you've done in our lives and for the reality of your presence among us. And Lord, as we look to the reality of what we truly believe, may we keep our heads up, recognizing that you're going to come again, that you are ascended, and you are king. And that you call the shots. Lord, help us to relinquish the reign of our lives unto you. And we give you our lives to do with as you wish, Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, we can walk away continually praising you and worshiping you and blessing you. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.